Today's episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Inquiry Partners. Inquiry Partners is recognized around the world for their research-based, accessible, and practical approach to implementing inquiry-based instruction at every grade level and in every subject area. Inquiry Partners is seeking IB coordinators and school leaders who are interested in test driving their new Experience Inquiry online course. Learn more and get 10% off their online course and companion workbook at edcuration.com. I just wanna, I just wanna go outside Staying inside, got me losing my mind I just wanna, I just wanna go outside Staying inside, got me losing my You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements, resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning. Twenty twenty was a year that changed everything. In response to the relentless, tumultuous challenges, many young people turned to art to express their complicated feelings. The New York Times Learning Network's Coming of Age in 2020 contest collected those expressions and compiled the winning submissions into the book, Coming of Age in 2020, Teenagers on the Year That Changed Everything, curated by Katherine Schulten. Its contents range from diary entries and poems to Lego sculptures and recipes, serving as a window into Generation Z's experience of a pivotal year. It's a powerful testament to the resilience of young people and the transformative potential of art in times of crisis. You heard one of the entries at the top of the episode, and you'll continue to hear student entries throughout this episode. They're all linked and credited in the episode notes. It's heartbreaking, hopeful, fierce, funny, and we invited Catherine to share it. But first, a little about her own journey. I was a high school English teacher in New York City public schools for 10 years. Um, and I also did uh, was the faculty advisor to the student newspaper there with zero experience, let it be said. Like I learned on that job with the kids. The high school I taught at is the single most diverse high school in New York State to this day. It's every kind of kid who lives in Brooklyn. Quick update. The school where Catherine taught was named the most diverse high school in the state, but has since dropped to number four in New York State. So suffice it to say that it was a true melting pot. And following those years as a high school English teacher, Catherine went to work for the New York City Writing Project, part of the National Writing Project that has chapters in every state. They taught me how to teach, and I was delighted to be a teacher consultant for them for nine years in schools all over the city that needed extra writing help. Meanwhile, the major media outlets in New York City were endeavoring to create curriculum and to integrate instruction around current events into schools, resulting in the Learning Network, created in 1998. Catherine worked for them as a freelance writer and editor until 2006, when she was offered the role of editor-in-chief of the New York Times Learning Network. She served in that role for 13 years, and she continues as a contributing editor overseeing projects like the one we're discussing today. I mean, I really thrive on being with teachers and kids, but who says no to the New York Times? And I thought, let me do it for a year. And now that was 16 years ago. So 
I haven't left, but I also, I know that when I retire, I'm going to find my way back into classrooms. I think all of us who are teachers transitioned into some other area of education, there's always a huge part of our heart that is still in the classroom. During your career, there's been this common thread through all of your different roles, I think, of this passion for elevating student voice. In fact, you wrote another book um, about raising student voice. And so where did that passion come from? I put everything I know down to the writing project, right? Like I was a baby when I did the Summer Invitational and they are so much around justice, around each kid, every kid's a writer, every kid has something important to say, every kid should raise their voice and fight for a better world. You know, that I was just raised with that and I believed it. And when I was in my own classroom, I always had my kids, this is way pre-internet, right? I'm old. So this is, <laughs> I would have kids send their stuff out to open calls for manuscripts, for letters, for poems, for whatever, as part of what I did. Now we kind of, you know, I feel like teachers use the phrase authentic audience. They often say to us, the reason they value the learning network is we have so many opportunities for work to go outside the classrooms. I feel like I always had the feeling that kids needed that audience beyond the teacher. And when I ran the school newspaper, that became really clear to me. I wasn't great at it because I didn't, I was learning as I went with some brilliant, brilliant kids, but just listening to what they would come up with for ideas for what they wanted to cover about the school versus what I would have come up with if I was really like telling them what to cover was night and day. I mean, Mm. you know, they saw things I didn't see. Theirs were so much more interesting. You know, kids would grab at the paper when it came out because they managed it, not me. And I think that drove the lesson home for me. As I was reading this book, um, Coming of Age in 2020, that you edited and compiled of student work, I was really just reminded of, you know, how during the <laughs> the years of the plague and then the Renaissance was sort of born out of that and how there's always this mm-hmm. experience of like the phoenix, right? Rising from the ashes always happens through the arts, this artistic expression that gives us a way to process our trauma and our drama that is so healing. And so I'm wondering where the idea for this book came from, because I feel like it does that. Wow. That is my, the favorite, my favorite framing I have ever heard of this book. So thank (laughs) you. That's beautiful. I want to share it with the kids who, you know, the kids whose work is in there. Um, well, as I said, our site, you know, regularly runs contests. For a decade now, we've been mm-hmm. running 10 or so annual contests, the notion of which is like, send us your essays, your podcasts, your poetry, mm-hmm. your photo essays, your whatever. And Times journalists will help judge. And, you know, we're going to honor kids' best work. And so we're very practiced at that. But we announce our contest for the coming school year every August. And certainly by August of 2020, you know, post the summer of Black Lives Matter, still in a pandemic for which there were no vaccines, um, looking ahead to the election, wildfires had just been happening in, in a, you know, across the West. Mm-hmm. We were so aware that it couldn't be business as usual. That Meanwhile, though, of course, the, you know, our whole job is to take what the Times reports and find ways to get it into classrooms. And the Times just kept publishing articles where historians and museums were saying, 
hold on to your artifacts. Like this is an extraordinary year. There's a quote in one of them that I love that's like in the future, historians will um, specialize in one quarter of 2020. It's so rich. So we said, okay, you can send it in words, in images, in audio, in video, any way you want. Send us what you've got. If nothing else, look back on your camera roll because there's no way you don't have artifacts on there of what 2020's been for you. Catherine and her team asked that every student pair their submission with an artist's statement, which often proved to be the key to really unlocking the significance and impact of each entry. A good example of that is a kid who sent in a borscht recipe, you know, cold beet soup. Yeah. Um, but his artist statement was about how he cooked it over and over for his father when his father had COVID. And it comes out, you know, in the between the lines that is, he's lost his mother already. Um, and if he hadn't had the artist statement, you know, we wouldn't really know any of this, right? Yeah. What was the most unusual medium that a kid <laughs> used to submit their work? I mean, that's, that's the thing I think I love the most. And that's what I hope came out in the book. We got what you'd expect, which I think is photos and videos and essays and poems and audio files and paintings and collages and screenshots of text. We got quite a few of those. But the things we didn't expect that we got is the book ends with a crossword. Um, we got a Lego sculpture. We got all kinds of diary entries. We got multiple comics multiple original songs. Um, we got selfies. We got a pack of tarot cards. We got to-do lists. We got data visualizations. I mean, we said, send us anything you want. And these kids sent us anything they wanted. So yeah, so fun. And, and just so the listeners know, the audios and the videos, there are links in the book mm -hmm. so that you can actually go and see the whole work and not just the stills that are available in the book. For example, the music you're hearing is an original composition entitled Until Tomorrow by student TNU. There was one that I love that somebody just sent like a Google search for what was trending in 2020. And um, the list is order toilet paper online, how to become TikTok famous. <laughs> banana bread recipes, how to change your Zoom background. <laughs> I'm sure that I've, I've definitely Googled some of these things. Did Carol Baskin kill her husband? Easy things to cook besides ramen. How to teach your kid math. Is it really still 2020? How to cut my own hair. And who is Charlie D'Amelio? I actually did have to Google that last one because my curiosity was piqued. Charlie, no E, is a former competitive dancer turned social media celebrity, which I think means that she dances on TikTok, which is that an actual career? I guess it is. I mean, you go, girl. What we loved is we got kind of an equal mix of actual artifacts like this yeah. happened in this moment in time and stuff kids created. But both of them both whichever direction they came from it just spoke to an absolute moment in time that yeah. we've now forgotten right we're going yeah. into year i don't even know what three of this thing yeah. right yeah um and we can't remember what it was like at the beginning when we were crossing the street because we didn't think we could be on the same side of the street as right. other people you know that's why i think this 
book is valuable for the future, not just for kids like yours who went through it, because here's kids remembering in a comic, for instance, the actual moment when school shuts down and everyone's like, hell yeah, yay, you know, yeah. no school. And then how quickly that turned for it's them. Right? So fast. There was like so this fast. tiny little window where it was like an extended snow day, so cozy and fun. Puzzles. No, that did not last very long. Boy, did that not last very long. Yeah. yeah. So, so just in talking about all of these different entries, you had 5,500 entries and you chose um, 161, which mm-hmm. is, it feels a little random. Like why that number? How did that end up being the number that you chose for the book? Right. You, you need to know the whole process. And I think, um, you know, this goes to all times contest. So we got 5,500 entries. We went through a very rigorous judging process where we invited Times journalists, teachers who are outside the classroom and whose schools didn't participate. You know, also, we always judge blind. We have no idea names, locations, nothing. We just see the work. We also invited teenagers to help us judge kids who'd won our previous contests who weren't associated with any schools who applied to this because we knew there were going to be like memes and stuff like that, that were going to be over our elderly heads, you know, (laughs) and they needed to surface that for us. Yeah, my kids remind me of this pretty much every single day when I ask what they're laughing at and they roll their eyes rudely and say, you wouldn't get it, mom. Trust me. So it went through weeks and weeks, multiple, multiple rounds of judging. And from that, I believe 245 pieces in that ballpark emerged as excellent work. We wanted the end result to be representative in every possible way. It had to be the whole country, rural and urban. (laughs) You know, it had to be Uh, a balanced mix of kinds of work. It had to represent every kind of kid, you know, from every demographic. It had to represent a range of topics and types of expression and even down to the level of emotions about the same things that happened, right? So we were looking for a portrait, not for the single most excellent work. I put them all into a slideshow in a group of special sections, as they're called at the Times, editors, chose from among them to create what I believe to be, here it is, the first ever all-teen created special pull-out section that was ever in the Times. And it published on March 11, 2021, which was a year to the day that the WHO declared it a pandemic, right? shut down. So cool. It was that Tom Hanks night, that NBA night, you know. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Funny, right? So we were so happy to have that happen, they chose the 37 they thought told the broadest story. And it was great to have the help of, you know, art editors, photo editors, um, journalists to do that. But we always knew that there was a lot more to say. So we went back and we even expanded the search beyond the 245. And I literally made copies of every single thing that was in the book, laid it out on the floor of my office, moved it around, you know, and tried to categorize it and then sent all of that on to Norton, who had a hand in helping, you know, their whole team chose there. So it was a lot of people looking at this work in short. Well, so you kind of just answered one of the questions that I have, which was about the categories in the book. It sounds like the categories just emerged from the work that you received. The categories or chapters in the book are adjusting to a new normal, distancing, missing what might have been, feeling overwhelmed, approaching a breaking point, confronting anti-Asian xenophobia, 
Enduring COVID-19, Coping and Reinventing, Connecting with Friends, Quarantining with Family, Navigating Romantic Relationships, Surviving School, Working, Supporting the Black Lives Matter Movement, Witnessing Election 2020, Confronting a Changing Climate, Discovering and Reflecting. Yeah, we very much wanted to have it be as, you know, I think I think of that as authentic too, right? Just what yeah. do you want to say? And mm-hmm. we'll see what you said and then figure out, it, you know, how to tell the story. Things that ended up emerging that we didn't know would emerge, like the climate crisis, you know, uh, so many kids wrote about that or yeah. so many kids wrote about what that time gave them and how it changed them in a positive way, the reflection and who they'd become and the things they learned about themselves that they didn't know. I'm glad that you brought up this idea of hope because you kind of expect a little bit of a despairing rant, you know, mm-hmm. from a lot of the kids. And and that is not what you found. You, in fact, you write in the introduction, if I can read your own words to you, um, <laughs> through each individual submission, is a dispatch from a specific time, place, and point of view. This collection makes vivid what Generation Z suffered together. Again and again, these pieces show us their loneliness, frustration, and despair, their fraying relationships, the numbing days of online school, and their deep anxieties about the future. But equally vivid across every section of this book is their need... I'm choking up. (laughs) Is their need to find meaning... The vast majority of teenagers who responded to our invitation found a way to reach for hope. They surprised themselves by bonding with family members, discovering nature, inventing new hobbies and making art. They woke up to injustice and came together in their power to fight it. In spite of everything, they told us there was joy. In an upended year, they discovered things about themselves they might otherwise never have known. Did this surprise you? I, yes and no. I mean, in a way, I think we all went through a version of that, right? You know, what I feel about this book, everybody who works on the Learning Network is a former teacher, right? We've all been in high school and middle school classrooms. I feel like what I always knew about teachers, teenagers and why I always loved them is evident in this book, but just kind of turned up to 11, if you will. Mm, so, yes. you know, like I, what I love about teenagers is they just aren't hardened into talking points the way adults are, you know? If you ask them about their political opinions or their feelings about, you know, name the controversial topic, we see them on our site thinking in real time, right? Every day, because we have daily writing prompts and get tens of thousands of responses over the months, right? That vulnerability, that willing to be that willingness to be honest and that like endless searching is something that I knew from being with teenagers in person. Um, and their, of course, desire to define themselves and, and understand who they are. But it's in this like pressure cooker of 2020. So it's just yeah. that much more intense. Plus one thing I think we all have noted about this generation that's so admirable this will get me choked up is the way they're so open about mental health. Right. And it's so beautiful to me. These kids are so willing to explore it, talk about it, be open about it. And that's throughout the book. So many of these kids turned it to a kind of dark humor, which I loved or, um, you know, have a line or two in there that are just like so funny and self-effacing and, and, uh, you know, 
and then to the hope they they can't they you kind of can't keep kids down looking for ways to create similar inquiry-based learning experiences for your students, today's sponsor, Inquiry Partners, is a great place to start. This is Kimberly Mitchell, founder at Inquiry Partners. We're proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. Inquiry Partners offers innovative professional development around five key inquiry-based teaching strategies so that schools are the joyful, purpose-filled places where both students and teachers can thrive. Connect to Inquiry Partners and get their Inquiry 5 School Bundle at edcuration.com. I know that some of our listeners are probably really wondering and wanting to learn a little bit more about the New York Times Learning Network. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you collaborate with schools? First of all, we're outside the Times paywall. So everything we do is free and every Times article we link to is thereby free. So you you go in knowing that. Our job is to just help kids, you know, help teachers teach with the Times, help kids learn with current events, and increasingly help kids have a voice around what's going on in the world. So we post new content every single school day of the year, um, including some days two writing prompts a day. Everything we do is open to comment. So we hear from kids around the world on, you name it. The most popular stuff we do, quite honestly, is probably this thing, what's going on in this picture, which a lot of teachers will know and maybe not even know it comes from our site. We take a mysterious photo from somewhere in the Times, strip it of its caption, and then we have this freewheeling but live moderated discussion every Monday where kids answer three questions. What's going on in this picture? What do you see that makes you say that? what more can you find? So it's evidence-based. We get colleges and we have um, moderators from an outside organization that help kids really explain why they see what they think they see. And then we have a reveal on Thursdays and we easily get, you know, 900 people in that conversation every week. We do a similar thing with our data science reporting with graphs on Wednesdays with the help of the American Statistical Association. The Times publishes, you know, 1,400 articles and photo essays and podcasts and whatever a week. So it's kind of endless for us what we can do with it. Limitless. No wonder you love your job. It sounds amazing. Around this specific project, if I'm understanding right, there was a way for teachers to bring the project into their classroom and there was an accompanying curriculum so it could be a whole project or unit of instruction for them. Um, Can you say more about that? Yes. Um, We, as I say, run about 10 contests a year. And whenever we have a contest, we produce curriculum that helps teachers almost step-by-step bring it to the classroom. So a lot of teachers plan around our contest and work it into their curriculum. For this one, we do a lot with Times mentor text. In other words, we spend a lot of time looking through the Times finding stuff, and then we break down the moves. And we say, look what this person did in the magazine section, you know, just describing her weird pandemic hobby. How can you do that? We had writing prompts, maybe 25 writing prompts, like what's challenged and changed you this year? What, you know, how do you feel about masks? You know, whatever was going on around 2020, we were asking those questions and telling kids, you can start writing about some of this and realize you've got a 
a, an idea here for an essay, a poem, a painting, a comic, or whatever you want to make. So yeah, we have a quite robust curriculum. And let me say this contest has now run three years in a row. And every time we have student winners, those become the mentors for the next year. So two questions. How typically for your for your annual contest, how many days of instruction is that for a teacher to set aside to, to participate? I guess I would say that everything we do, you could make a month out of it or you could do it in a couple of days. It just depends. Oh, okay. We consciously said for this one, listen, just have kids look back at their camera roll, pick something, write an artist statement about why they did, why they picked it and, you know, maybe do some other, you know, you might sit in groups and share and talk about how you could, which one you should pick and that kind of thing. But that could take two days, right? Mm-hmm. Or you could do it, a, a few schools did it across the curriculum where they involved art teachers, social studies teachers, mm-hmm. English teachers, and everybody was thinking about, you know, who am I after these months of pandemic life? Um, and what do I want to express? And then the art kids did art and the writing kids did writing. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that because it really changes our perspective of, okay, I'm in the middle of something that just needs to be endured and gotten through to that more, what yoga teaches us, right? Is that what does this moment have to teach me? And it's a complete shift in our, in our perspective around what's happening. Yeah. And, and we kept, you know, we say this to kids all the time in all our contests, honestly, but for this one, especially we kept saying, you don't have to take on a whole global phenomenon. Instead, show us that moment at three in the morning when you and your stepbrother are making brownies in the middle of April 2020 and like bonding in a way you never have. And it could be a poem, an essay, a diary entry. That's just that moment. And and we get it. We're going to get it. Well, it's what we as writing teachers have always tried to teach is that the story is in the details. Of course, it's in the slice of life, it's in the the moment that paints a picture for us. Yep. So the winners, what does that mean to be a winner? They're published in the New York Times, um, yes. and you know they've got their name that they can put it on their resume for college or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what we hear over and over and over from teachers, as I I think I said at the beginning of this, is like my kids don't even care if they got picked. Now they see themselves as writers, artists, whatever, but they all realize that somebody read their work, that it, it went beyond them. For many of them, it's their first time writing for an audience, not their teacher. And of course, when they get ready to apply to college, they're all going to have to do that. So it's it's a a little bit of practice and, you know, sending your work out into the world before you have to do that in a formal way. Catherine, do you have a favorite or a couple of favorites or ones that most surprised you? All right, I knew you were going to ask me this, and they're all my children. I want to, I, I, I want to say a few, the, a few things that stick out for me in this book that you forced me, knowing you'd ask this, to go back and think about. I mean, some are the just gut punches, right? There's a girl who wrote a poem called "Okay" that she told us in her artist statement. She was just sitting on the edge of her bed the night before this contest ended. She's a girl from Brooklyn two-bedroom apartment, five family members, everybody's got COVID. Um, She's trying to take care of them. She hears her mother praying the Quran in the other room, you know, her aunt's coughing in the room she's in. She's trying not to get it. It's just like a a creed de corps, you know, Um, and it's so vivid. Uh, Mm. 
that's one. There's another one called A Letter to My Teacher with a kid, and it starts out, I hate school. I hate school. I always have, for as long as I've walked the earth. I hate getting up so early, even when the sun is sleeping. I hate the hours of endless lessons and the mountain of homework that I carry home. I hate how there are packed hallways and constant noise. I hate thinking of what others think of me. I hate having to be in groups with people that I barely know. But you know what, Miss A? I miss school. I miss the interactions I had with people who were just acquaintances. I miss the teachers I got every year who would always be different and unique in their own way. I miss the loud and chaotic place that was a school. I miss the thought of wondering what others are thinking about me. But you know what's worse than worrying what others think of you? The thought that no one is thinking of you at all. This is the scariest thing I learned from COVID-19. It's across the page from this, one of the most beautiful visual pieces we got, which is a, a homage to Christina's world. Um, it's a boy with a cello and he's watching the school bus disappear up a hill, like yearning late. It's, oh, it's so poignant. And another one I'll tell you that just got gets me in the gut every time is a kid, Kalton Muhammad, who is from Minneapolis near where George Floyd was murdered. First, it was the bank that caught fire, then the building across the street that helps people find jobs, then the Walgreens. We were standing in front of my neighbor's door when a man came and set several trash cans on fire. My mother yelled at me to grab a hose and my hand shook as we put the fire out together. I didn't sleep that night after I packed my most important belongings in my school backpack, and neither did the rest of Minneapolis. There were points as I watched police officers use tear gas on protesters and walk through the mains of my neighborhood in riot gear to face crowds of civilians, but I felt like my anger would consume me. However, when I went to protests and visited the memorial and heard people speak, I felt the seeds of hope start to grow. I was awestruck to see the amount of people who showed up for the cleanup efforts, organized food drives, and painted murals. Someone had spray-painted the word healing at the top of what was once a Kmart. As I watched the birds soar past the broken buildings the May afternoon, I realized that resilience is in the very fabric of our community. We searched hard for these perspectives that not everybody had that told us part of the story that we didn't know. And one is a, a kid who lives on a farm in upstate New York and was like, hey, maybe the rest of you were doing jigsaw puzzles and Netflix in your pajamas. I, I have a I have crops to keep going. Yeah. Um, he writes about his dad losing a part of his finger, you know, during this time. And but he's funny about it because kids are funny. And then another girl, Penelope Cardenas, worked in the, the window at a fast food place and talks about that perspective, having Trump supporters come through and give her like, you know, badges and bumper stickers and stuff. And then having Black Lives Matter people come through and just seeing history passing through the window of the fast food, the kids who were funny, God bless them. The five stages of grief, quarantine, bangs edition. Everyone was cutting their hair and she has photos and she's showing like denial, like bargaining. How do I get my real head back? And it's so funny and cute. Um, another boy did a video and we have stills of it where he shows all the outfits he wore over COVID. And he he's talks about how at the end he finally found his own style. And it's just delightful. He puts it to fun music. And then finally there's a kid the title of it is, wait, did I just join my sister's friend group? And it's by a kid who has a seventh grade sister, and he's so bored that he has to hang out with seventh graders. What further thoughts and insights do you have now about 
how the the turbulent year continues to shape our teens and young adults as you continue to interact with them. I mean, so many thoughts on that, because, of course, we keep hearing from teens every day, all day. There's a girl in the book, Lauren Sanchez is her name in North Carolina. She says, we don't have past examples for how to come of age in a world like this. So we're figuring it out on our own. I will say one hopeful thing is around politics. We heard from kids over and over and over for this contest and continuing about how 2020 woke them up. And that's the words they used. You know, so many kids were in the streets for Black Lives Matter. So many kids couldn't vote in 2020, but did, you know, were doing what they could going to door to door and, you know, all kinds of things. And now we see in this most recent election, the Gen Z turnout was incredible. And I think those repercussions of understanding they have a voice um, and feeling really politically motivated is going to keep going. I do want to say that we run this contest annually. And one of the ones we got last year was from a girl who was reflecting on January 6th. She made a beautiful collage, right? And then her artist statement, she says, a man swabbed the inside of my nose while Trump supporters advanced into the building and lawmakers hurriedly evacuated. During the next 24 hours, the three of us, meaning her family, waited for our test results while the nation waited to hear the aftermath of the riot. Since January 6th, the problems have been all I can see. I want to focus on school, on my artwork, on cross country and track, on my friends, on my future. Instead, I'm left wondering if there will even be a future for my generation. In my piece, I used orange and yellow paper for the background because coming of age in 2021 is realizing that the world is going up in flames and you have to be the one to locate the fire extinguisher. There's something about coming of age during extraordinary times that we don't even know what the implications are down the pike and the trauma and the, but also the promise, you know, that they really are going to seize the, they, they can't sit back the way my generation did. The book is Coming of Age in 2020, Teenagers on the Year that Changed Everything, edited by Katherine Schulten of The New York Times. Links for Catherine, the book, the New York Times Learning Network, and lots of the student work are available right here in the episode notes. You'll also find today's sponsor, Inquiry Partners. See why school leaders and leading researchers like Pedro Nogueira, dean at USC School of Education, call Inquiry Partners Workbook the must-have reflective journal and resource for inquiry-based teachers. You'll find Inquiry Partners at edcuration.com. Simply click the Connect to Vendor button to learn about their discounted Inquiry School Bundle to support elementary, middle, and high school inquiry. We hope you found this episode helpful and inspiring. We love your comments, likes, and shares, and we'd especially love it if you joined us again next week on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning. Thank you.